From the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, this is Creator Talks, and I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest this week is Stephanie Phillips. She is the writer behind The Butcher of Paris, which is being published by Dark Horse Comics and coming out on December 4th. The artist on the book is former guest Dean Kotz, with colors by Jason Wordy and letters by Troy Petrie. Stephanie is also the author of The Devil Within and Descendant. Our focus today on The Butcher of Paris is a true crime story set during World War II in Nazi-occupied France. The Butcher of Paris follows a detective desperately trying to solve gruesome murders committed by Marcel Petois. It takes place in 1944 toward the end of Petois' murder spree. The detective who's on the case is George Victor Masseau, who along with his son Bernard, are trying to solve the case and find Petois before the Nazis. Stephanie did a lot of research on this story. Stephanie always does a lot of research for her stories, and she also talked to her family to get some background about this story, but not directly about the events, not the way you might think. I'm also going to kick back with the creator and ask Stephanie the fun questions I ask all my guests, such as, what are some of the big challenges he faces being a writer? What really grinds her gears and then later makes her happy? And what's the biggest problem in comics today? How can we make them better? And we also find out about Stephanie's day job. That's a really interesting story. So settle back, grab a glass of brandy, optional of course, and join me and Stephanie Phillips talking about her new book coming out December 4th through Dark Horse Comics, The Butcher of Paris. Let's get started here now on Creator Talks. Stephanie, welcome to Creator Talks. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, where are you right now, geographically speaking? <laughs> Not existentially. Not existentially. Um, we can get to that later. All right. All right. Um, I'm in Buffalo, New York right now. Getting chilly there? Starting to, yeah. I'm, I'm from Florida originally, so it's always a shock when I see leaves change or feel anything below 70 degrees. So. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> My blood is thickening up a bit, though. I'm in the Southwest. I woke up and it was 34. Oh, wow. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought this was the desert. It's supposed to be hot out here. No, no, it's <laughs> cold. It's crazy. It changed very quickly out here. I saw a forecast that's supposed to, I think, snow here over the weekend. So I'm excited for that, though. I think most Fun. other people in Buffalo are not as excited as I. Yeah, Buffalo can get socked pretty hard. Yeah, but, you know, I never grew up around it. So it always makes me excited and feel like a little kid. So You're not tired of it yet. Okay. No, I've only been here a year, so... <laughs> Nope, not yet. Well, now that I've talked about the weather, it means the show's going right in the tank. I'm going right to weather comments. <laughs> <laughs> completely changed things. About your upcoming book, The Butcher of Paris. I saw that in previews and I was like, awesome. I really like the sound of that. It is a true crime story, which I do like, set during World War II, set in Nazi-occupied France where it has a detective desperately trying to solve gruesome murders committed by Marcel Pertou. Did I say that right? Uh, I've been saying Petois, but... Petois! Uh, or Petio. Um, so, you know, I should maybe find somebody that speaks way better French than I do. Um, <laughs> my mom would hear this and be like, uh, you took six years of French, please do better. So did you, I took five. <laughs> I think Petois... That was my initial impression. That was mine too. Somewhere in those six years of French, I probably learned something more than asking where the bathroom was and how to order food, but you oh, know. Oui, la salle de bain. 
<laughs> I remember that much. <laughs> I know. I got so excited when I asked somebody in Paris for the time at some point, and they just like laughed at me and answered in English. And I was like, no, 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 no. I was speaking <laughs> Let's do over. <laughs> you were speaking very good textbook French, and no one right. understood you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> No, I tried looking up the pronunciation, and I heard it, like, multiple different ways, and I'm like, okay, they don't know either. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, because I've only seen it in writing, and there's very little in the way of even documentaries or anything. So, yeah, we're kind of, we'll go patois, because I said so. <laughs> well, you're going to be the authority this evening, because we're going to learn a little more about patois, and about the French detective Georges Victor Messo. Now, that's a fictitious character, yes? No, he was actually a real oh. detective as well. Tell me a bit about both of them. I did read somewhat about Patois. He sounds like a really messed up dude, like from day one. <laughs> you know, in doing a little bit of research, uh, you know, Detective Massu was actually working the case at the time. I think everybody in the book is historically a real person. I'm trying to think if there's anything in there that I just said that's a lie, but I don't think it is. Everybody is actually <laughs> a real person. And he did work the case. And um, he did have his son Bernard with him throughout the case. His son was a law student at the time. And from his teenage years on, Bernard was kind of a sounding board and uh, went with his dad to most crime scenes. So when, you know, Bernard and his his dad arrive at this scene, they you know don't really know what to expect. So he brings his son kind of unknowingly into one of the most horrific serial killer cases in history. The reason I think I picked them was, you know, we have a, a city occupied by Nazis during one of the most horrific wars in human history and a serial killer, one of the most horrific serial killers in human history. And uh, I really just thought focusing on this relationship between the father and the son uh, would be a really interesting way to kind of ground everything that's going on and look at the way all these events were kind of impacting actual relationships and lives in Paris at the time. And um, the two, they kind of stuck out to me. I was like, that's really fascinating that they had a close enough relationship. You know, they were working together on cases and that he trusted and loved his son enough to have him as his kind of Watson. So Massu was actually called the French Sherlock Holmes, the real life French Sherlock Holmes. And I like the idea of his son as like his kind of kind of Watson reining him in a bit and uh, oftentimes maybe being the one that has the answers. So writing about them has been my favorite part of the book is kind of writing their relationship and their dynamic. Well, there is information out there about Patois, but how did you find out about the relationship? How much was there available for you to build upon and expand upon that story of the father and son detective team? Very little. There is way less that really was about them together. Uh, Massou had, he had worked another serial killer case in Paris when he was younger. And I mean, it, it plays a role in, I think, how he probably would have worked another serial killer case. The Landru case in Paris did not, while it was solved, it took a while to solve it and kind of more lives were lost in the process of police trying to, trying to find, you know, a thread to follow in the case. And so I, I think there's the most extrapolation in terms of I thought somebody that had worked a case like that and seen such an extreme loss of life in a very horrific way would approach a another serial killer case as a much older seasoned detective and what that would maybe mean for how he approaches it while working it with his son now. And so I think that colors a lot of their relationship working on the case together. And it kind of leads to some of my favorite moments in the book, which are really tiny things. But Dean is just such a good storyteller. Like there's a moment where they're conversing about the case, but 
Masu is a father first, and he has to start messing with his son's bow tie. So, like, they're still talking these details, but he has to straighten his son's tie. <laughs> I, I love those little moments that, you know, I, I think Dean does a great job of kind of reflecting it. And um, I think that's where maybe the most me comes in, uh, my relationship with my dad, kind of doing everything with him. And um, Sherlock is actually one of the first books my dad gave me, and I still own it, which is like this big leather-bound Hound of the Baskervilles. And I just fell in love with Sherlock, and it was kind of, it was kind of our thing for a while. And uh, so I, I took a lot of, you know, or at least the most of me that you will find in the book, I think is the relationship between Masu and his son, Bernard. Are we going to see things mainly from their point of view? We're not going to get into Patois' head so much or see his point of view at all. It's going to be them looking at what he's leaving behind the victims, the crimes. Yes. I really didn't want to focus so much on, like, there's definitely some gore in there, bits and pieces. And, you know, not to say that Dean couldn't draw an amazing severed leg. I'm positive he could, but I want the story to be a little bit less like murder porn. (laughs) That's the direction I wanted to go in with this. And I don't want anybody to mistake what we're doing for that because this is really, uh, truly horrific and taking place during, again, one of the most horrific wars that we've ever seen. So I wanted to tell it from their perspective and show their perspective. Every once in a while we do go into, um, so their adversary is um, a Gestapo officer named uh, Robert Jodcombe. So historically the Gestapo and the French police are not great friends, but the options there were either leave the police force and basically just let the Gestapo have free reign over of the city, or you remain in your position and kind of do the best you can under these circumstances, but still be kind of like the barrier between the Gestapo and the public. Uh, Masu's position was, I'm going to remain in my position and try to be the best possible barrier I can between these monsters and the public. And that creates a grading effect when Jodkin wants something done and there's resistance or Masu wants something done. And obviously the Gestapo don't want to play nice. So, so there's definitely a, a big adversarial relationship as the two of them are trying to solve the case side by side. Obviously don't want to work together and they are you know, trying to cause delays or problems for each other. So we kind of see it from both of their perspectives. Obviously, the the Nazi perspective is is not a great one. Um, but, you know, we, we do see the war encroaching on the city. We, we hear a lot of the discussions about, you know, what the Nazis are going to do as the Allied troops are getting closer to Paris and things like that. So the war also plays a pretty key role in what we're telling story-wise. Everything that I read about this comic is what drew me to it. Like you said, it's not gore porn. And everything you said makes me want to read it even more. And I think the audience is going to really like this too because it is getting into the relationships and the investigation and all these things going on other than just the murders, which is a horrible setting, including Nazi-occupied Paris. You're a bit of a history buff. How did you first come across the story? I was reading a book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I was just reading like a free online book on like Google Books about Nazi-occupied Paris. I'm a big fan of Eric Larson, who did Devil in the White City and In the Garden of the Beast, which is about the American ambassador in Nazi Germany. And I love his approach to historic, because everything is accurate, very well researched. But he's telling you these kind of like slice of life stories that are all real stories and kind of a different perspective than just reading a bunch of facts and figures about 
uh, Nazi Germany, you're reading about, like, I never would have thought about, like, who was the U.S. ambassador in Nazi Germany. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. So I was trying to read a little bit more about, you know, Paris and Germany during the time and, and get a more, like, specific perspective. And there was just one line in this book after Normandy Here's the trial of Marcel Patois and his somewhere between 60 and 200 victims. And then it moves on. And I was like, wait a minute, you you can't just like drop that. And then like, oh, okay, let's move on to the next thing. Like, who is this guy? 60 to 200 victims. How do you not have that narrowed down more? Or like, so I started researching him and, you know, there, as I'm sure you saw looking, there's so much online about him, like on just murder. I don't know, even know what to call him. Like the people that like true crime of obsessed people have websites for him to like learn more about him you know he's got his wikipedia article so there's a lot of facts about him and i did a lot of research into trying to find case files and i spent about a year eight months to a year just researching the case before i even decided you know i wanted to tell a story like i thought maybe it would be a short story somewhere or something but i was just researching it and one a friend of mine was like you need to stop reading and actually like put pen to paper and this is what you need to do. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. So uh, I actually started working. You know, a lot of cases, they found many bodies, but based on what he did, there should be more. And I don't think they all turned up. But it was pretty horrible how they discovered it. And I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and read about this because I'm not going to spoil the story because it's all about how we get there and how this crime is solved and all the relationships and the whole setting of World War II Paris. So I didn't care about that. But this guy, he became a doctor, quote unquote, in like eight months. I'm like, what medical school is that? He became a doctor while he was institutionalized in an insane asylum, <laughs> which is my favorite way to become a doctor. Just like, well, I've got a few months to kill while I'm here. What could I do? Oh, a medical degree, you say? <laughs> he was institutionalized. He served in World War One. He was constantly stealing like supplies from other regiments. And then he tried to like blow up his own foot. Like he was constantly just doing weird things, like things that just made everybody like really uncomfortable. And uh, at some point they were like, I think maybe this guy should be committed. Um, and so while he was committed, he, uh, you know, had enough free time to become a medical doctor. <laughs> It wasn't the first time he did something, too, because they kept sending him back, back to the front. They would, like, hold him for a little while and then send him back to the front. And then, yeah, it's somewhere in his his life, you know, he got to become a mayor. And then he was thrown out of office for siphoning, like, electricity. And it's just one weird thing after another. And there's all kinds of other, like, you know, in five issues, we, we do our best to fit as much as we can. But his backstory is just extensive. There's narcotic cases against him where... Uh, suspiciously, all of the people that were supposed to testify against him went missing the night before the trial. And it's like, well, you could have like maybe spaced that out a little better, but he didn't care. He was like, uh, whatever, you know, I haven't been caught so far. What's, you know, three more people. And this is before, you know, World War II happened. So he's insane. We do go into his backstory a bit in one of the issues. One of the things that I was concerned about was having, you know, scenes of talking or interrogation or conversations. But Dean is such an amazing storyteller that there are scenes in like an interrogation room that are just their art, like the way that people are communicating in their body language. And it's just fun to look at because I find new details that Dean added every single time I look at a page. I'm going to read this month to month. It's five issues, miniseries. When you get to the point where hopefully it all gets collected, all this research you have done should be added into that. I mean, you're going to add some in there, but if you have a lot, that'd be a great way to 
put it out there as a collected with that bonus material. Is it from hell? There's an Alan Moore edition of that that in the back has like a huge collection of research notes. And I always found that fascinating because there are some unknowns. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that this guy actually did what they say he did. But there's a lot of unknowns about some of the hows and missing bodies and things like that, that, you know, at the time with uh, medicine where it was, they couldn't quite solve. There was definitely some unknown toxin he was using that they really couldn't identify. So tox reports actually came back. There was nothing in anybody's system, which really didn't seem possible. And, and again, they're working with very minimal remains. He was dissolving bodies in lime pits and burning what was left from there. So um, so what coroners had to go off of was already a little too minimal for actual detective work. But yeah, I did my best to kind of piece some things together and like maybe not present the most Wikipedia-esque article things, you know, because I wanted to focus a bit more on the city and the relationships. But I definitely went down that rabbit hole and I've looked into a few more academic options of continuing to kind of write about him because I have all that research and I just kind of want to do something with it. You know, you mentioned the artist Dean, and I spoke to him, and he's working on Warlord of Mars and other books, too, for Alterna Comics. And he's doing a lot now. I mean, it just seems like he's exploded. And how did you catch up with him to do the art on the book? I don't quite remember. I think I was introduced to him uh, by somebody on Twitter. I looked at some of his work, and I thought he would be a really great fit. And I gave him some sample pages to kind of see how we would, you know, gel together and just ended up being better than what I really imagined the book would be in my mind. So it was pretty perfect. And then uh, Dave Johnson was always on for covers. Like his thing was, if you start writing it, I will do covers for your book. And I was like, okay, well now I have to go write this because I'm not missing a chance for some amazing Dave Johnson covers. Jason Ward is doing the color. Yes. And letterer? Troy Petrie is Troy letters. I think Troy has lettered every single thing I have written, uh, except for one thing. So uh, whatever I'm working on. And he did some really cool stuff with like font and uh, balloon tails, which I am a giant nerd for that stuff. So I think it looks really cool. And Jason, of course, I think is doing something really unique with colors. Like when you look at the interiors of this book, there's something about it that's a little different. And I mean, I love that in a very good way. It's so artistic and gorgeous. And like I said, I just keep finding kind of new details from Dean and Jason that I I missed like the first time around. I'm super stoked to see this. And we can take it for granted that we can get anything online pretty much. Just, you know, the Wikipedia searches and all. It's very easy nowadays. But some of it I'm sure you've done offline. And did you not talk to relatives? They're not directly related to this story, but to get some idea about that era, what it was like to live back then. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting opportunity to learn a little bit more about my family. I'm Jewish, but I passed preschool. We didn't really practice. Uh, I went to a Jewish school for a little while. And um, at some point, my mom was like, I'm tired of making you kosher lunches every day. So you are going to North <laughs> school. <laughs> I was like, that's a good enough reason to give up a religion as any. So uh, yeah, we didn't really I mean, we still do something for Hanukkah every year, like time permitting kind of thing. But um, I mean, eight days, it's a lot to get all of us in the same room. So <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're good with like one day of like some matzo balls and latkes. We put the ish in Jewish, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's great. 
but I didn't know much about my family. Like I knew that I, like, I know I'm Dutch and that my dad's parents were the first English speaking, like in the family. And my dad was born in Germany and then moved. I mean, he moved to the U S when he was like two, but yeah, I didn't know that much about that side. And, you know, luckily for me about a year ago, my grandmother got her first cell phone, um, and has learned to text. So <laughs> have these conversations that like could span just weeks and, you know, she could remember new details and send me pictures as she was finding them. And I didn't quite realize how many of my relatives that were in Holland at the time actually were there during the war. And I got to see some kind of pictures of my relatives that fought for the U.S. And I mean, not a lot of that maybe makes its way into the book in a factual way. But I really do think that one of my goals for this, again, not being murder porn, is to really talk about and think about the idea of empathy and how we learn history. I mean, history, like you can go read the numbers for how many people died in World War II, and that's a number on a page. But each one of those numbers is an actual person that had their own history. I really kind of want to think about comics and fiction and, you know, works of art in general as kind of a new way to approach learning history and being engaged with the past because, you know, maybe our current situation tells us a little bit about how poorly we learn about the past. I can't remember who said it, but the other day, oh, I think it was on The Good Place where they kind of said something like, and Nazis are back for some reason. It was just like, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's definitely some of that in the book in terms of it was very emotional to write. The more invested I got in the time period and in learning about my own family history. And I just kind of hope maybe it also encourages other people to do the same and kind of take a personal approach to learning history. Not only learning more about your family, which is so important, learning this history orally, because without you doing that, it would be lost forever. And having a deeper understanding of grandparents, everyone, you know the Moors people. I don't mean to sound weird, but when I go to a graveyard, I'm walking around I'm like, I wonder who these people were. I see dates and a name, but who were they? I mean, they were people. They were doing things. They had lives, they had relationships. And when you address that in a story and the characters in your book and you really get into the, the characters and their emotions, you really care about the character. You're really vested in the story. If you don't do that, you just aren't buying into it. And when you do that research and you build those characters and you make them as real as you can, you're vested and you're into it. And I'm sure you have experienced the same thing in what you read and what you watch on television. You're into it because you care about what's happening to the people in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have some projects coming up in 2020. You're going to keep doing some things that are historical based? Yes. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing is, is historical based. Actually, uh, I was just kind of looking at the publishing schedule and some of it is soon to be announced, but I have about five new creator owned books coming out in 2020. And I think all of them except one are historically based. So I'm just really excited that people are kind of letting me continue to do this thing. I mean, there's, there's a twist on some of them, uh, but it wouldn't be me if it didn't involve a lot of research, I guess. So well, for you, that's part of the joy, obviously, because you have to be pulled away from it. You like digging into that research, and then comes the story, which that's just as much fun as actually getting to the story for you. Yeah, it's like finding a bunch of puzzle pieces and then, you know, getting to figure out how everything's going to fit together is really the fun part about writing comics. 
See, you're a Sherlock Holmes too. In a way, <laughs> that's what you're doing. You're investigating. You're a sleuth. I always wanted to be a detective or like, you know, some kind of FBI agent. I was always pretending to be a detective as a kid and making my mom come up with mysteries for me to solve. And when she couldn't think of anything, I, I remember one day when she was in the kitchen, she was just like, I don't know, I lost a pen. And I spent all day categorizing every pen in the house to try to narrow down which was the pen. And I know like as an adult now, there was no missing pen. She just wanted me to go away so she could finish doing the dishes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Give her something to do. <laughs> were helping me like practice because I write a lot of you know mysteries and detectives and things like that so I at least get to bring them to life in another way. <laughs> and some of your previous work is it not coming out collected next year? Descendants coming out in a collected volume? Descendant is coming out as a trade in January. I think it's actually coming out on the same day as issue two of Butcher which is excellent. Very good. Almost like you planned it. Almost. I definitely didn't plan it. So I just kind of got like, <laughs> I got really lucky. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be kind of nice to have both of those out. Awesome. So we can check out this series, look at your previous work if we haven't already. And then we have all these other projects coming up next. That's a very busy. Have you already started writing all those projects? They're just now getting locked in. You've been researching. What am I saying? Actually, I was just working with my sister today to make like a digital schedule of everything so I don't lose track. Turned in an outline for something new today. And let's see, I think every month for the next three or four months, I will be announcing something new. Wow. <laughs> Nice. I'm excited. I don't know that, like, I think at the end, by like month three, people are going to be like, we are so sick of you. Please stop writing comics. By the end of 2020, everyone's going to know who you are in comics. Like, you're going to be like out there at the head of the pack. I don't know about that. I'm just, I'm just hoping that at the end of 2020, somebody else will be excited to let me work in another new random time period that I feel like learning about that day. So <laughs> I think that's going to happen. Now it's time in the show where I kick back with the creator. These are the fun questions I ask my guests to learn more about you as a person. It doesn't have to be about comics. It can be, but it's a little more uh, broad than that. So, for example, first question, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Obviously. Um, <laughs> After what we talked about, sure. I've had somebody tell me before that I, I need to learn what a hobby is because usually whatever it is I do, like I started doing martial arts years ago and I couldn't just do martial arts. I had to become a fighter and I took a bunch of fights. I became a coach and like <laughs> I started running self-defense programs. And yeah, so I don't know how to just like do something for fun, um, working on it. Uh, I do play recreational hockey uh, every once in a while. So I guess that's something that I, I'm not going pro as a hockey player. So. <laughs> I get you because I'm the same way. I get totally into something. If it's a hobby, I still get like way, way involved in it more than I should. It's not casual. I'm like totally committed to whatever I'm doing, but I get you. And then I guess for you, your work is your hobby. So you're having so much fun. It doesn't feel like work. <laughs> okay <laughs> well <laughs> at least you're having fun yeah no it's better than any other job i've had by far so i enjoy it a lot have you had an odd job something that you just did it to get some cash get work done pay the bills didn't want to do it but you know was it something a little off the beaten path my first job i worked at a firehouse subs in tampa florida for a brief period of time but they never let me make subs they just made me clean things <laughs> Did they not trust you? Actually smart on their part. Nobody should be letting me like prepare food. So they just made me clean a bathroom, which is even worse. I'd be like, don't use the bathroom. They tell me to clean it. So I go in there on my f and just like play games on my phone because that's not happening. <laughs> um, 
in undergrad, I worked at a pottery studio for three to four years. And that, that was a lot of fun. It was like a pottery studio and cafe. So maybe not the odd job, but, you know, I'd paint on dishes for children's birthday parties and things like that. So it was great. I like that one. What a segue. You've listened to the show. I'm going to ask next, what was your favorite birthday and why? Let's see. A couple of years ago, it wasn't directly on my birthday, but for my birthday, I got tickets and flew to New Jersey to see Brian Fallon play because he did not play any Florida tour dates. So that was like kind of my birthday gift to myself was to go see Brian Fallon in New Jersey. (laughs) Last year on my birthday, I was in LA having dinner with Jason Manzoukas. I can't believe I forgot that. That was super cool. Um, Jason Manzoukas, he's in The Good Place. You would absolutely know him if you saw him. He's in the new John Wick movie. Um, He's got like the curly hair. He's the comedian. He's awesome. And so I got to have dinner with him on my birthday. How did you manage to swing that? He's apparently friends with some of my friends. And they surprised me on my birthday. He was like, you can't come to LA and not hang out with a celebrity. And so we went to dinner with Jason and... Uh, He was super nice and also just as funny in person. He's in Parks and Recreation also. He's Dennis Feinstein, the perfume guy. That's really cool. You're friends. Yeah, I have good friends. (laughs) Now, this is a hypothetical situation. You're stuck on a deserted island. You'll get out of there, but you want to pass the time. I have a feeling I know the answer based on what you've said. What would be your island book? I feel like I'm going to say one answer and then like in the middle of the night, wake up and be like, no, I made a mistake. I mean, obviously I love anything. Sherlock is my favorite fictional character of all time. (laughs) That's what I would have guessed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's like a huge library of Sherlock. So I feel like if I just say Sherlock, I I also am kind of cheating because it means I get to bring way more to read. Yeah, I I guess probably anything there. I don't know that I even have a favorite Sherlock mystery. I mean, my favorite one is my dad gave me the Hound Hound of Baskerville one. If you could have a comic or graphic novel, and that would be really difficult for me to narrow it down. And I mean, it can be trade, a graphic novel, so we can make it a big book, not just a monthly book. What would that be? Uh, These Savage Shores. Oh, very good. It's phenomenal. Uh, (laughs) Ram is a great writer, and uh, that book has been really, really good. So I haven't read the last issue of it yet. I'm looking to pick up the trade soon. So I guess because I know I want to go get that trade, that's probably my first answer. (laughs) That's a great one. Yeah, I've read that series. I didn't get to the very end of it, though, so I'm also in line for the trade. But it is a beautiful and very good story. So yes, I I like vampire stories. So, But it's much more than that, which is the great thing about it. And it's historical-based. In fact, I had Ram on the show, and he was teasing. Teasing the book. He couldn't say what it was yet. Another hypothetical. Dark Horse is going to make an action figure of you. It's going to come along with the book. What would be your accessory? <laughs> um, a little black cat. Okay. Do you have a pet cat? Yes. I, I mean, I have two. I do have a little black cat. And she is the one that's always writing with me. Like, my other cat will always be in the room. But if I'm writing, the little black cat is on my lap. Just always so helping Uh, yes yeah she's really good at helping and if she doesn't want me touching the keyboard she just bites my fingers so it's like i guess i'm done writing (laughs) she's like back to me yep (laughs) when resting relaxing what is your beverage of choice dr pepper or cherry coke i mean honestly more coffee like i those two are like guilty pleasures but i drink constantly i shouldn't drink soda and i drink diet soda and when i do i like diet dr pepper or yeah. the flavored sodas. 
like the vanilla, orange, or cherry. Very good. Being a writer, what is the biggest challenge that you face? Well, I guess it's a it's a new one. Like writing my own stuff, you know, somebody could be like, this character doesn't do that. If it's my own character, it's like, well, you're wrong. I made them up. They do it if I say they do it. Like, I'm kind of a god here. <laughs> but, you know, lately I've been writing way more licensed work. That is super challenging, especially when it's a character that I know and love. And, you know, it's all exciting. Like, I get to write this person. And then all of a sudden it's, like, up to me to make words come out of their mouth. And there was a lot of panic. Not a little panic. There was a lot of panic all of a sudden with this, like, wow, this is kind of a responsibility. Like, what I say, they will say. And so, I mean, it's one of the coolest elements of the job, but also kind of moving more into the license side. It's been one of the most daunting things I've faced because I have been a comic reader for so long. So I know these characters and yeah, so it's terrifying. (laughs) What was the first comic that you read? I remember that the first comic that I had as anything collected, like from the beginning to end was Batman Long Halloween. Before that, I was kind of just picking up random things as a kid. I know that I I liked um, Josie and the Pussycats as a kid and Sabrina because there were cats involved and I always had cats. And then Batman, anything Batman. What is it that really gets under your skin, grind your gears, and it can be comic related or it can be just anything. And then what is the one thing that also then makes you happy again? This bothers you, but you know what? This makes it all better. Wow. I don't know what bothers me. I mean, my mind immediately went to, because I I also teach, and I immediately went to like multiple things that I had students do today. Uh I love students. I love them all. But, uh, you know, I've got a hundred of them. Sometimes they have demands. So... I don't know. Like I, most of my pet peeves are probably really small things. Like the word a lot needs to be two words at all times, or my eyes will pop out of my head. Things like that. Um, things that make me happy again. I like music. So music always is a, can turn the tide of any mood kind of thing. Do you have a go-to for that? Anything Bruce Springsteen, anything about him, his creative process, like listening to him talk, listening to him play music. Absolutely love Springsteen. So yeah, I guess that's the happy thing is Springsteen. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's the boss. That's the happy thing. Yeah. And you said you teach. And now is it English creative writing with the kids? I actually teach technical writing to engineers. (laughs) Wow. Well, big kids. Okay. I work in an engineering department at the University of Buffalo. It's fun. It's interesting. (laughs) It's uh, like my degrees are all in English and uh, they kind of took me from an English department. It's been interesting to kind of see the difference between working for a humanities field and then working for STEM. So it's nice. (laughs) How did you get interested in technical writing and to teach it? Um, My PhD is in writing and rhetoric. And so working in the rhetoric side of things, I worked as a professional technical writer at like an epidemiology center for an IT department for a law firm. Um, So I did professional technical writing. I've, you know, studied it, taught it and Um, I had a friend working at UB and they were kind of heading up this new initiative to have people dedicated to just like, how do we help engineering and STEM majors become better communicators? And that's kind of my jam. So they uh, offered me a position here. (laughs) Well, now that I know all this about you, doctor, I feel self-conscious about my English now. (laughs) All but dissertation. So my dissertation (laughs) is about halfway done. (laughs) It's Hmm. been difficult to finish that while writing substantial comics and teaching a hundred students but it will be done like very very soon i will be a doctor (laughs) wow 
I can't believe you're undertaking all that. That's amazing. Yeah, I can't either. So remember that time I said I drink a lot of coffee? <laughs> yeah. And no rest and relaxation. Yeah, I get it now. <laughs> what do you think is an area of improvement needed in comics? I initially had this question. What's the biggest problem in the world? Which is huge. But looking yeah. at comics... How can we make them better? Well, I mean, I think we need to have people stop trying to dictate what art is or what entertainment is and what joy is. Uh, You know, these older directors that are like Marvel movies aren't actually cinema. Like, go, you know. I saw that and I was like, you're just jealous because you're not in the spotlight anymore and they're making a ton of money. Or just everybody likes different things. So it doesn't invalidate what you make or what you consider art. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of... You know, trying to say that something has to be uh, now very highbrow, and especially as graphic novels and things like that move into more academic discourse and we see them in college classrooms, uh, there's a lot of this like kind of pinky out behavior like, oh, they must be graphic novels. And it's like, um, okay, but also like a comic has real value and merit as a comic book. And also explosions are cool and action is cool. And that has merit. So does, um, you know, a more heartfelt story. So does um, uh, the Top Cow book that's about swingers. They've got BDSM, like awesome like there's something for everybody in it and not one section invalidates another also not one thing is more highbrow than another you like what you like let people enjoy things as long as it's not a racist thing so other than racist things enjoy what you enjoy now how do you measure your own success i mean we have objective measures of success you earn your phd success but how do you day-to-day say i'm successful I'm not good at looking back on things. Like once I write one issue, I immediately hate it. The goal is to always have the next thing I write be better than the last. You know, there's always the day where I'm like, I'm not doing enough or, you know, I don't have something that I'm talking about online or announcing right now or something. And I have to make a list of all the things I'm working on. It's like, okay, if I was doing one more thing, there's not two of me. So this is a, you know, a very good comprehensive list. And I'm extremely lucky to have as many books coming out as I have coming out. And, you know, I think learning to be in a place of contentment is going to be a new thing for me, but it's something I'm working towards. You're always moving forward. Never looking back. And for aspiring writers, what advice would you give them? Something that you've learned along the way that you wish you knew sooner, but you've learned it. And what would you share with them? So parse out who's actually worth listening to. And this isn't to put, you know, anybody down or like, I think we just have a lot of people behind keyboards that think they know the industry. And, you know, I, I don't even know that I know the industry. I think the right thing to do is maybe look at finding people way more senior in the industry and getting some of their advice. And that has, you know, helped me a lot because not everything that you see on the internet is the way that comics actually work. Um, you know, I see a lot of complaining about like, uh, the industry doesn't do this right or or this right or something. And, you know, I've come to find out years later, oh, that actually wasn't an accurate statement about how the industry works. So, you know, I, I think take for a grain of salt what you read on the Internet <laughs> and don't uh, measure your own success by, again, the person sitting behind the keyboard tweeting about how much they're writing every day. I guess if we just focused on that, it could be pretty tough. And I know some people just check out from social media for a while. They don't want to get distracted by that. It's just one channel. Stephanie, it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to the book coming out December 4th. Makes a great stocking stuffer. So if someone doesn't read comics and they like true crime, they like mysteries, they like World War II stories, or they just want a good story, there you go. Stocking stuffer. Get one for a friend. (laughs)
Stephanie, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks this evening. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the holidays are approaching. Christmas is getting closer. We're already at Thanksgiving. So on this holiday, I want to say thank you. I am thankful for my listeners who enjoy the show, and that's why I'm here every other week to bring you something you want to hear that you want to listen to and can enjoy. So I gave you a few shows in a row. Normally, I'm every other week. I'll be back in two weeks with a special guest I interviewed here and in person in Las Vegas, Donald F. Glut. Yes, he's a big horror fan, made a lot of amateur films, recently made a film that was released called The Tales of Frankenstein that came out in 2018, now out on Blu-ray. He also wrote many stories for Creepy and Eerie Vampirella. He wrote for Gold Key Comics. He wrote for DC. He wrote for Marvel, some of my favorite books from back in the 70s. He wrote some stories about Solomon Kane, And of course, he's written stories about Frankenstein, which is his favorite monster of all. So this will probably be one episode. It could easily be two. It's a longer one, but I think I might do it as one. So I'll have that audio up in two weeks, and I will also have an accompanying video where I can insert photos from the books that he's done, the films that he's done, and some of the people that he's talking about who have been in classic horror films that he's met and worked with. But until then, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram, where I will have my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Tell a friend subscribe. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, Spotify, and voice-enabled devices. And if you have not had the chance, you've put it off, and you're thankful for the show, please leave a review. Leave a star rating. You don't have to write anything. Just leave a star rating. It is greatly appreciated. And to show my appreciation, there is more great interviews in the works coming your way. 2020 is not far away. Some new plans for the new year that I think you're really going to like. So enjoy your holiday. My best to you, your family, and your friends. And keep enjoying those comics. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.